0: Hi, welcome to the MEND podcast. I'm your host, Joe Roter with Red's Fly Shop, coming at you from literally the banks of the Yakima River Canyon. I am out here, uh, Riverside, hilariously I'm having to sit in my truck while I do this because the shop is so crazy, noisy, busy in there with people asking questions and phone calls and it's all fabulous for business, but... I have a tough time getting these podcasts done unless I go hide somewhere. So um, I'm hoping not to be spotted by one of the other guys who wants to come over here and chat fishing. So, uh, But anyway, I'm looking at the river right now. It's beautiful. It's great conditions. I should be fishing, uh, but I want to do this podcast. I want to get it out, and uh, I'm excited about this format because it's going to be questions and answers uh, generated by you guys, the listeners. And uh just want to thank you again for tuning in. This podcast has been a lot more work to get going than I ever thought it would be. I had dreams of getting all my industry expert friends to sit down and patiently talk through these podcasts and chat fishing and share strategies and tips. And I'll tell you, getting one of these fishing guides to sit still for more than about 10 minutes is pretty tough, Um especially when we're on a river. I mean, we'd rather fish than talk about fishing. So uh, I'm out here actually getting some peace and quiet, um, sitting riverside. I'm going to go through some questions for you, answer as many of these questions uh, in detail as I can. Uh, follow us on Facebook if you don't already. Um, that's where I'm going to be posting your opportunity to ask your question and uh, get a detailed, well thought out, lengthy response for me. And uh, hopefully I answer all of your questions uh, without confusing anybody. So I think I'll just get right to it here. Uh, the first one is by Wesley. And he just wanted some tips on teaching kids under 10 how to fly fish. Boy, that is right up my alley. Uh, I got two boys. Uh, my boys uh, are more into fly fishing than my daughter, who's the oldest one. Uh, she's 13. Holy cow, that went fast. Um, i actually trying to teach her to drive right now a little bit. Not on city streets. <laughs> in a giant horse pasture. Don't freak out people. Uh, <laughs> never thought I'd live to see the day my daughter was driving a car. Uh, but my boys, uh, they're avid fishermen. And I think I adopted a really good formula for them because they're, they're fly fishing crazy and I never had to push it on them. Uh, in fact, I probably underdid it just because of the fact I fish all the time. And uh, taking two rambunctious little boys fly fishing, although that sounds super fun when you've been fishing all day or all week, uh, untangling a few lines for your customers and such, uh, getting your family out fly fishing, uh, can, can take a lot more energy than what I got. Sometimes usually we do a lot of other stuff, but I think I did it just about right. And I think the recipe for me was I tried to get them involved in tackle fishing naturally first. And the reason that I think that's just super critical is kids haven't really accept, you know, they didn't sign up for the challenge of fly fishing. Dad did that most of the time, maybe mom. Uh, but fishing is still a big mystery to them. They didn't figure out the tackle thing yet. Uh, and so with my kids, I just wanted to be able to go fishing with them initially and have them be independent. Uh, kids don't want you nagging at them about what their wrist is doing and where their back cast is going and that kind of stuff. Um, so for me, and, they're, they're going to snag backcasts in the tree. They're going to tangle. They're going to fail to get distance. Uh, a lot of stuff's going to go wrong right away in fly fishing. And kids don't necessarily crave that type of challenge. Uh, they just want to get some fish uh, or at least feel like they are fishing. But kids are smart. If they're tangled or struggling, uh, they're, they're not going to really feel like they're participating. They might as well go catch frogs or skip rocks, which is a critical part of the trip. But with, with kids, I did the spinning rod thing first. I got them pretty good rods that they could, they could cast. We fished mostly, uh, lures and jigs and stuff like that. But the recipe for me was there's a pond, uh, in the city limits near where I live. And, uh, during a summer evening, if I had to run to the grocery store, run errands, I would say, Hey boys, you guys got, you know, you get five minutes to get your stuff in the truck and we'll head down and you guys can fish a little bit, you know, on our way home from the grocery store. And uh, I would do that regularly, and then pretty soon mom started doing it. And they would rig up their spinning rods, grab their tackle box, you know, dig a few worms if they were going to bait fish, but usually they'd end up using jigs. And they'd catch a lot of bluegill and uh, little micro bass off the dock at this local lake. Uh lake's called Mattoon Lake for anybody who's been around central Washington. But they'd catch these, you know, these sunfish, uh, you know any type of warm water species, and uh, they would accumulate a lot of catches, but the cool thing was the boys got to make their own decisions on where they were going to cast, how deep they were going to fish, what kind of lure they were going to use, and I gave them very minimal help. Uh, I wouldn't go out and nag them, I wouldn't bug them, uh, I let them, you know, as soon as they could tie their own you know, uh, lures or jigs on, they were tying their own knots, and then they had to make their own decisions, so They'd get a wild hare and go, man, I'm going to fish this big Rapala or I'm going to fish deep uh, or I'm going to fish a worm under a bobber. And they would, you know, they get to make their own decisions. They got a ton of skin in the game. And when they would have success, it was because of decisions they made and not because of what dad was doing. So that, to me, really catapulted them into fly fishing. And uh, we would cast fly rods a little bit. They would see dad cast fly rods. and They would become enamored with that flight of the line of the fly. And then they wanted to do that naturally. And our fly fishing trips uh, were almost all exclusively on small streams uh, during the summertime. No waders required, sandals and shorts, uh, even wet wading and jeans, so they had long pants if there were sticker bushes. Old sneakers worked fine. Uh, and we just go small stream fishing and uh, aggressive little trout, hungry little trout. If you live near mountains, uh, the foot of the mountains, uh, those little streams generally have a very short growing season for trout so they're very aggressive in say late june through early september uh or october even and depending on the climate where you're at but those trout are aggressive and they give the kids multiple opportunities to catch the same fish you know fish will jump up bite their fly they you know naturally they're going to miss a lot of them on the reaction uh you know as they're learning to set the hook and hook the fish and then they could throw back in there and the fish is going to bite again um So, I, I kinda, I live near some, you know, fabulous fly fisheries for trophy fish, especially the Yakima River. It's a blue ribbon stream, and I think it's world famous. It's definitely famous out here in the Northwest or the West. Uh, but I avoided the big rivers, avoided the big challenges, small rods, small waters. As far as rods go, uh, for kids that are younger, I love the TFO, uh, Tenkara Cutthroat rod. Um, We fish that a lot. I fish it myself a lot. I love the Tinkara tinkara deal for for kids or any beginner on small water um, because the casting is extremely intuitive without a reel. A reel naturally confuses young kids and casters because they expect the line to shoot out and they, they constantly use the reel when they shouldn't. So the Tinkara is very intuitive uh, love that. It's not a cheap rod, uh, but I think it's a lifetime investment and it packs down great. You can go see I've got a bunch of YouTube videos on ten car rods. Uh, but the the temple fork cutthroat's the only one I've found that's light enough and small enough for that for the kids and the small stream stuff. but uh, the other one is um, a five weight line on a three weight rod casts really good for kids at that point blank distance of ten to twenty feet or five to twenty feet overloading that three weight. Uh, Is really handy. I took my son, my 11 year old. Uh, he was 10 at the time. Uh, took him to Yellowstone. We well, took took the whole family to Yellowstone. And scroll back and listen to the Griswold family podcast uh, or fly fishing trip if you haven't uh, on our Podbean account. Uh, but did the Griswold family fly fishing trip and really found my son just absolutely excelled using a five weight line and a three weight rod. Made the casting much more intuitive. He could feel the rod load, feel it catapult. And, uh, my 11 year old's become quite a stick and that has not been because I pushed it on him or anything else, but I gave him a taste of that challenge early with the, uh, with the tackle gear and he got to, got to actually catch fish based on his own doing and make his own action. Uh, he realized real quickly that just waiting around and hoping for a fish to bite wasn't going to work, but if he changed strategies, changed lures, changed jigs, changed where he's casting and the action of the, the lure, fly, whatever it is, um, he can generate more success and, that's translated directly in this fly fishing. So uh, I hope some of those those tips help. Um, you know, that that heavy line on the light rod is a good start. Tenkara, if you can afford to you know, pick one of those up, I just think that you're going to see a instant results there. And then just put them in uh, positions for success. Short, short days. And always, always, always get ice cream on your way home from fishing with the kids. Or if you've taken the wife or the girlfriend do a fancy dinner afterwards. Totally worth the investment there. Okay, the next question is from Peter. And uh, Peter wants to know about prospecting during the wintertime. And I'm going to assume Peter's asking about uh, river fishing. Uh, I can speak, you know, primarily to Western-style fishing. Uh, You know, it may, may differ, you know, throughout various parts of the country or species, but Uh, For most intents and purposes, uh, my questions are regarding trout fishing on rivers. and Prospecting during the winter is going to vary a little bit based on stream size or what you're using to get around. If you're you're in a drift boat and you're being rowed downstream by a buddy or guide, that's a little bit different than if you're on foot. Uh, But I'm going to prospect a little bit more with streamers if I can cover a lot of water. And those are primarily going to be really large streamers, uh, sculpin pattern, and fished on a sink tip and fished on a pretty slow retrieve. And I'm going to cover, you know, quite a bit more water doing that if I'm going to be prospecting and moving along. If I'm on foot during the winter, um, I might streamer fish some. But the thing about streamers, uh, during the winter time, trout tend to, I, I'm going to just, I'm speaking all from generalizations here, just on my, you know, 20 years of experience, in the winter time there seems to be a threshold, and I don't know what the exact water temperature is, uh, the trout tend to go from preferring a little streamer in the fall, um, something like a really thin number eight, like a thin mint, or a hail bop leech, kind of a carry bugger type pattern, to a much larger, heavier, thicker profile, sculpin type pattern, and I don't know what the time of year is, or the water temperature, but you know, in most of the places I've trout fished, there seems to be a transition, and we're sitting here in January now, and if I'm streamer fishing now, I'm fishing very large streamers, and I'm fishing them slow and low in a walking speed or slower water in the deep pits, and the deep tanks and pools of any river that I'm on. And if you're fishing on foot, uh, streamer fishing can be effective on foot during the winter, but... The problem is you can tap out the tap out the hole or the pool pretty quick. Uh depending on the size of the the pool or the hole, you know, on a small to mid-sized stream, you might throw three or four casts and you know, you're, the element of surprise is then lost. Either the fish bit it or they didn't bite it, and if they didn't bite it, chances are either they didn't want it or they've seen it now and they're no longer surprised. It's no longer a rare and unique opportunity and Streamer fishing really, at its core, should be thought of as an ambush where you're surprising the, the trout with a very rare and unique opportunity. Hey, you better eat this now, or you might not eat for a couple of days type of thing. So if the trout sees it a handful of times, my experience suggests that you're, you're probably not going to get that fish on your 10th, 12th, 20th cast. And that means either you are having to walk to another piece of water move around a little bit and and find another um, ambush point to try to get a fish so for me personally during cold weather uh, if I see a piece of water I like I'm probably going straight to the nymphs and I'm probably going to prospect with the nymphs and that's if I'm on foot that way I can throw hundreds of casts through a pool with little nymphs and I can use my time much more effectively because you know fishing days are a little bit like a football game that the clock management and time of possession is huge if you spend half your day walking from pool to pool using a streamer it you know that can certainly be effective but you run the risk that if that streamer you get halfway through your day and that streamer hasn't deemed itself effective you've spent a lot more time walking than fishing so during the winter time on foot i'm tend to be a nymph guy uh i i would prefer dry fly fishing but that's not happening here today. Um, So nymph fishing and prospecting. Nymphing uh, during the wintertime generally, other than an occasional midge hatch, you're probably just prospecting with a variety of different nymphs that live in the stream year-round. Stonefly nymphs are a great idea. Um, Most stonefly nymphs in western rivers live on a two to four year life cycle. So you can always count on there being stone nymphs in the river. And if I were fishing, say, for a million bucks, and I'm actually looking out at a piece of water that I just love uh, right out here at Red's Fly Shop. And if I were fishing that water today, I would probably start at the top of that run with a single stonefly nymph so that I didn't snag the bottom, I didn't tangle. It's super simple. Plus, it's super cold out, and if I tangle, which, yes, I tangle once in a while. Don't act like you don't tangle. Uh, even I do it every now and then. But by fishing one fly while I move through that run the first time through, I'm liable to not have a second flyer, or dropper, or snag the bottom. So I might walk through and I would work downstream on, on a bigger river like this. And I would start at the top of the pool and I would work that stonefly nymph down through the run, walk back to the shore, shove my hands in my pockets, warm them up. And then I would work through with, say, two small nymphs. And I would work downstream again through the, the best part of that seam. And I would probably work those pools in a rotation, even if it was a small stream. Because ideally, if I show the fly to the fish, I'm going to move on. I'm not going to beat him to death. I'm going to let them forget about it. And then I can go warm my hands. I can walk back up and move through again. So I would start with uh, the streamer if I was boat fishing. That would probably be my go-to because I could simply cover lots of water very efficiently prospecting for large fish. I'm on foot, I'm going to lean towards nymphs in the dead of winter. Uh, in the fringe months, I'm probably going to be swinging on my spay rod, a little trout spay, and covering water that way. But if I'm fishing for a million bucks, I need to put some fish in the boat. I'm probably nymphing uh, and and working through the run multiple times with different flies, starting with a big stone nymph first, little fly second. And uh, I've kind of taking on this challenge of euro style nymphing. i'll do another podcast about that and talk about the challenges i bumped into but uh, that would be something to kind of consider learning is euro style nymphing eventually the next question uh, is year-round fishing locally Um, how do you go about trying to figure out a year-round fishing program in your local area uh, without having to go on some exotic vacation or some trip that cost a super duper high amount of money and although you wish you could go you're confined to doing what the rest of us blue collar folks uh, do and I say the rest of us I never thought I would get on an airplane to go fishing I've been super lucky to get to do what I do for a living um, the idea of getting on a plane to go fly fishing was I never even considered that uh, when I was young so uh, my, my dad was a logger <laughs> and uh, that whole idea of getting on a plane to go anywhere was pretty ludicrous uh but let's put together a year round program for you um first thing i'm going to do is uh where you live is definitely going to have a huge impact so i'm not sure uh the, the person asked the question i'm not sure where they live but considerations are going to be just obviously extreme temperatures uh you know when we say year round we're probably talking about winter being the biggest challenge uh out of out of the various seasons and we start to get temperatures down in the teens and low 20s, even mid-20s. I don't care how tough you are. It's just going to be difficult to even fish. Your guides are going to ice up. Um, you know, Chances are whatever you're fishing for, probably not going to be super productive with the fly anyway because we typically have movement um, that we need to induce uh, with the fly. So we need to either get a fish to chase or encourage the fish to move and attack something, which can be pretty tough uh, when temps that cold. So uh, that's going to have somewhat of an impact on it. Reading a weather forecast, uh, I'm going to kind of take this towards trout fishing because that's where most of our guests are coming from, as a trout background. And uh, what I'm looking for as far as weather conditions in in trying to fish year round is I'm looking ahead for cloudier days, uh, typically. Cloudy days typically have warmer nights, uh, although the daytime temperature might not get quite as warm. Uh, cloudy days actually make for warm nights, which is the biggest, Im- has the biggest impact on water temperature. Um, if it's getting 45 during the day, but it gets down to 20 at night, your water temperatures are still going to suffer. I'd much rather have it, you know, 30 at night or 32 at night and 35 or 36 during the day. And, uh, your water temperatures are going to be much more stable and predictable. The trout are going to be happier. So look for stable, stable nighttime temperatures. Uh, one resource that we have it in Washington state, and I'm sure that other state management agencies do, but we have something, I think it's called, uh, of all things, uh, Go Fish at uh, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife's website. And there is an amazing summary of, of fisheries and species on that site, and most fishermen do not take advantage of that, um, at least in our home state. Uh, RDFW has done a fantastic job of getting that information out to the public on what species are there. And, uh, I think that there's probably some lakes and streams, uh, that get ignored, uh, that you might think about checking out and using, uh, your off season a little bit to scout and take a look at new waters. And, uh, although maybe the fishing would be tough because you're, you're going to these new places for the first time, you're going to figure out where to park, where to go, uh, and kind of where to park, where to go, how to walk down to be at a stream, lake, or whatever, uh, and you're going to solve some of that stuff uh, during the off season. Get a little fishing in, keep your expectations in check, but I think using the winter season as kind of a scouting season uh, is a really, really wise idea. Um, Successful hunters do that all the time. Uh, I do a lot of big game hunting myself, and I'm I'm spending more days in the field in the off season than I am during the hunting season simply because I want to make efficient use of my time. So, uh, I think the same principles or strategies can be applied towards fishing and utilize the fishing season to scout. Um, and then adapting gear. Um, if you're going to fish during the off season, which is going to be the fringe months, say, you know, November through, you know, March, think about sinking lines. Um, sink, sinking lines or sink tip lines. In fact, I'll, I have another question that, I'll probably answer next uh, and kind of roll into this uh, regarding sink tip lines. But think about uh, broadening your equipment base, uh, sinking lines, sink tips. Uh, be thinking about lakes. Uh, lakes will often have a thermal decline, uh that kind of protects the fish. Uh, as long as lakes aren't frozen over, um, there will be a certain depth in lakes that have a favorable water temperature to the trout. And uh, you'll be able to fish uh, fish those lakes pretty effectively with a uh, like a full sinking line. Uh, lots of different products, but uh, we sell a ton of them on our website. Uh, imagine that, me trying to sell you something. Uh, but get a full sinking line. Uh, you can put that on in November. Do some lake fishing, and that's it, it, definitely in our local area. I see that something that is really missed uh, during the early spring. Uh, lakes fish really, really well during the early spring, say February, March time frame. And uh, by the time the, the lake fishing kind of slows down later in April and May, Uh, you're ready to jump on your local river so uh, I hope that's helpful Uh, go spend a little time just researching new fisheries find some new places to go be thinking about lakes get a full sinking line and uh, and hopefully that will help you discover some more of those year-round fisheries but uh, don't treat a trip that you don't catch fish like a busted trip it's not there's lots to be discovered on those just figuring out whether you like a fishery or not you know did you enjoy going there? Was it pretty? Was it aesthetic? Uh, you know, and the logistics of getting parked there. How long does it take to drive there? What's the road like? Um, these are all questions that are great to sort out. Um, probably not during the peak of fishing season, but at other times of the year. Okay. So hopefully that helps. Um, we got a phone call today. Um, we didn't get the person's name, but um, the phone was ringing off the hook here at Reds. And I heard one of my, my fellows downstairs uh talking about this, and I thought it was a really good question, especially because of the time of year, um, but valid question any time of the year, and that is talking about an integrated sink tip line versus a multi-tip line system. And uh, for intent, all intents and purposes here, we're gonna just be talking about single-handed rods during this question. So an integrated sink tip line is a say a more traditional sink tip line where You have a, uh, either say, well, it could be a full, the whole thing could sink, but let's just say a sink tip system where the body and belly or the running line and the belly of the line is a floating material, just like your regular wave forward line. And then it transitions seamlessly into a sink tip. And that sink tip could be anywhere from, you know, five feet long to 20, you know, five feet long, depending on the specific, you know, purpose that you need it for, uh, there are lots of advantages to integrated sink tip lines, but that that's the definition of an integrated sink tip line. Um, years ago, that was you know, th- that was the go-to. Um, the spay revolution happened and kind of changed everything in how we look at sink tip lines. People stopped getting freaked out by the idea of loop-to-loop connecting uh, a sink tip to the end of a fly line. All the spay guys are doing it. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of utility to be gained by being able to throw either, say, a floating tip on the end of a particular line all the way down to something that sinks at 9 inches per second. And then you have various sink tips that you can simply loop-to-loop on there at different intervals. Uh, Both systems are great. Um, You know, where you're fishing and and what you plan to do with, that's going to be the biggest determining factor in what you get if you have a fishery that you're familiar with and you, you kind of know the game there, you know the sink rate that you like, uh, you know that you want something that sinks very slowly, say you want it to sink an inch and a half a second or three inches a second, and you can be more patient and let it get down, like lake fishing for instance. Um, an integrated line just can't be beat for the, the how they cast, how they shoot, how they fly through the air, just the control. And the fact that you can strip, you know, the fly all the way back nearly to your rod tip, and you don't have any looped loops coming through your eyelets. Um, so that's probably the the biggest the biggest thing is if <clears throat> you know where you're fishing, you know what sink rate you like. By all means, invest in an integrated sink tip line. Uh, you can get a spool for that, you know, as well, and you can plug that in and out of your number one reel. Uh, another thing to think about, you know, as we talk about sink tips in general is Lampson makes a three-pack. Uh, I think it's called the Lampson Liquid Three-Pack of spools and two spools and a reel. And uh, if you're thinking about setting up an off-season uh, fishing line system with a sink tip, maybe a multi-tip, maybe a floater uh, or a couple of different rates, that three-pack is a super good deal and it allows you to to get really affordable spools um, for your one system. but. The integrated system just fishes much much better uh the multi-tip system is pretty cool uh i use you know i use both of them depending on where i'm fishing um nobody should probably own as quite as much gear as i have uh but so i use both depending uh on what i'm doing and i like the the multi-tip system for some of my space style shooting heads um if I'm going to be, you know, because I'm going to be swinging a fly a lot in current with that, where I'm not going to be stripping it all the way back within the sink tip. So for swinging flies in bigger rivers in current, the multi-tip system really can't be beat. It it, it casts through the air fine enough. I don't got to worry about stripping it back through my eyelets, and I can change my sink rates um, dramatically from a slow sink to, you know, super fast sink and everything in between. Uh, one thing I'll caution you on is uh, if you're, if you're looking at one of these multi tip systems or uh, a shooting head or a single hand space style system is uh, if you're going to strip retrieve regularly and you're going to cast, you know, out a long ways, then you're going to strip that back and like strip a streamer or a leech, uh, get an integrated line uh, for that. And then you could have like a 10 foot sink tip on the end. Um, So examples of that integrated line would be like a scientific angler, spay light, uh, a wolf ambush triangle taper short uh the standard version at 20 feet head 20 foot head is fine too but uh if you're gonna if you're gonna do a mix of swinging flies and single hand space stuff you still want to do some strip retrieve those integrated you know running line and head systems are really great if you're uh looking at getting a sink tip system for exclusively swinging flies in current and uh you want to shoot some line and and cast to the end of the earth uh then uh, a monofilament line, running line uh, combined with uh, like an Olympic Peninsula Skagit Tactics OPST uh, head or there's a bunch of other ones Skagit Scout, Rio Skagit Trout Max. There's a whole bunch of those heads, but you can use that monofilament running line to gain distance and ease. It's just not fun to strip retrieve because mono running line is so skinny. It's actually very tough to grip. So, um hope that helps on the integrated, uh, lines. If you're lake fishing, uh, really encourage you to get the integrated line system and, uh, lake gurus and fishermen, uh, you're going to see a lot more results with a full sinking line, uh, as well. Just, uh, just FYI there. Um, okay. Another question here. Uh, this is a good one. I don't want to give away too many trade secrets of the Reds Fly Shop outfitting service, but, uh, I thought this was a pretty cool question, and I think it can be applied uh, to a lot of listeners on this podcast. Chances are, if you're listening to me on this thing, you're probably pretty serious about fishing, uh, which means you're going to end up being a coach, mentor, uh, or disciple to uh, other anglers. And I think there's something to be learned from this one. And uh, David uh, asks, uh, he is also a fishing guide and, uh, I think his business called Cooper Landing Fishing Guide Service. And, uh, he just said, you know, how do you plan a day and set it up so that you could meet the guest expectations? Um, number one is we just, we don't operate on hype. We try to operate on fact and we, we have some great fisheries, but we try to make sure that we don't inflate the expectations and setting the guests up, uh, with two, kind of two mindsets, uh, or Two two messages we want all of our guests here to receive uh, at Reds, and I coach our guide staff on this. And that is number one: um, always having that servant's attitude, where we got to remember the guest is doing us the favor by coming and doing business with us. They're our customer. Guides tend to get a little burnout; they get a little tired. They tend to get a you know, you know, in, in general, we're dealing with you know men between the ages of say twenty and forty years old, and uh, they're. There can be a little bit of there can be stallions. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say, and sometimes we get into this mindset. Well, we're great guides. We're, we're, we're you know these guests are lucky to fish with us that day, and that is the exact opposite of the attitude that we have at Reds, and we try to instill within our staff. Because I've seen I've been guiding almost 20 years now, and I've seen it at other guide services that I've been in, and and uh, I've had a little bit of that in me myself in the past, and. I've had other jobs, I realize how bad other jobs are, and uh, I'm very lucky to be a fishing guide, and so, what I always remind our guide staff is, without the guests, we're just a bunch of dirty fishing bums, and uh, we don't have jobs, we're not professionals, we're lucky to be here, so we have a servant's attitude, customer first, always, all the time, Um, so, First off, we try to make sure that we, we make the customer realize that we're grateful for them being here. I think that's a huge step in building trust with the customer, too. So first, first right off the bat, we thank customers for being there. And also, we try to verbalize that uh, we're going to do our very best to show them the best possible adventure today. Uh, we, don't, we don't get those words across every time, every day. Uh, you know, hey, my name is Joe. Nice to meet you. I'm going to do my very best to give you the best possible experience today. And we can't always, you know, will the fish to bite. You know, we don't have a you know, a crystal ball that will tell us what fly to use and where to be. And, and you know, you can't guarantee success every day. But what I can guarantee is that I'm going to do my best. And we hold ourselves accountable. Once we verbalize that, we hold ourselves accountable to that. Now, regardless of what happens during the day in the bite, We've told the guest we're doing our absolute best. We're going to work very hard and we're going to hold ourselves hostage to that statement. So I think those two things right off the bat really help. Um, naturally, and in, in we don't always do this, uh, at the initial reservation, but at the beginning of the day, we do a really short interview. The guest really doesn't, you know, re- you know, know that we're interrogating them, but, um, we asked them, you know, have you fished the river before? You know, and they, they tell us, oh, you know, either they say no, first time out. Okay, well, that tells a little bit. And if they say, no, I've been fishing with Steve for 25 years, we always have good dry fly fishing. Um, now we know we're in trouble, right? <laughs> um, but more seriously, we try to ask him a few questions. We ask him, you know, um, you know do you strongly prefer one you know, strategy to another? And, you know, most people say, no, I prefer dry flies, but, I, you know, I'm willing to nymph. And then we try to set up our day where... Whatever the, the favored strategy or expectation of the guest was, if they said, you know, I just want to see a section with less people, man, we put them in a section with less people. Uh, you know, I really enjoy fishing dry flies. We always, at the front half of the day, go and accomplish whatever that first expectation is, and then we let the catching kind of take care of itself on the back end. If we need to switch up to streamers or nymphs uh, or, or wind up strategizing differently, we'll do that at the back end of the day. And make sure that we're leaving with a few catches, but we make sure to meet that expectation really early. But uh, try to operate a no-hype marketing. Um, If you look at most of our our fishing images and photos, with the exception of some of the saltwater stuff, we don't take pictures of trout. Um, We didn't, you know, rarely. We take some close-up shots. We don't hold them out of the water. We try not to create any artificial expectations because ultimately the success should be accredited to the angler, you know, and... You know, you listeners and I probably know the guide has a lot to do with the angler's success. But we want the angler to feel like, hey, I caught big fish today because of me. Uh, or if I didn't catch fish today, you know, part of that was because of me. You know, they got to own that a little bit. Because this, the outright success, the day, the specific results regarding, you know, the number of fish and how big a fish, and et cetera, a lot of that's on the angler's shoulders. The guy guide, guide can tee it up, get the boat in the right section, choose the fly, give the advice we can but we can't do everything. And so what that means is when the angler has success, we celebrate with that angler and we make sure that we give them the credit for that. And the guide uh, is very humble in that and the angler gets uh, gets attributed with the success. And we've we just found that to be very successful for us. Uh, I, I hope that helps or kind of answers your question, uh, but we try to operate on a, you know, we can guarantee that we'll work very hard, no hype expectations, Whatever it is that you want to get out of that day, if you want us to focus you know, um, and give attention on instruction to your son, wife, daughter, whatever, uh, or you, or focus on casting, we're going to meet that expectation first. Let's let catching take care of itself. If the catching doesn't take care of itself, in the back end of the day, we'll revisit that, and maybe we'll employ some different strategies in order to generate some success. Or, you know what? We're out there on big wild rivers chasing wild fish. You know, it doesn't always work out. We may not, we may not catch a, you know, we may not catch a a bunch of fish that day. So, um, you know, we all, we all got to be, you know, big boys and girls and be responsible enough to own it. So, uh, that's part of why we call it a sport is because we don't always win. So, hopefully that answers uh, that question. But I'll be doing this again. Uh, I want to field lots of questions uh, for you guys and make it as real as I can. And I can speak more efficiently than i can type and you can't read while you're driving so that's why we're doing these podcasts so hope you enjoyed listening to the mend podcast uh make sure follow us on facebook follow us on instagram you're listening this on podbean get the app for your phone because the listening service is so much better uh when you actually get the app versus listening to it right off of our blog please comment please leave us a review uh we Love the encouragement and uh, know how that we can make these podcasts better. So for now, fish on.